to try and get to a C-suite role, like because obviously that's a pinnacle of 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 the kind of the, the executive sort of get pathway within an organisation. And I'd got there, and I thought that mm. would be, kind of been satisfied and kind of fulfilling what I wanted to do. But then I was kind of having these thoughts around that that actually I've got much more of a curiosity about why can't we solve these types of problems or uh, why can't the industry move on from this type of way that it's doing things. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Before we hop in here, I've got a quick favor to ask you. Smash the follow button wherever you're tuning into this episode. This way, you'll be the first to know about new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends, colleagues, business partners, so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture intersection, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Let's start from the very beginning here in true billion dollar moves fashion, John. I want to understand Question number one is, how did a Scotsman end up in Hong Kong? And if you can walk us through a little bit of your, your career journey there, I understand that you had quite a promising career in corporate, but then took the leap. So get started and fire away. <laughs> no, it's a great first question, Sarah. I'm more than happy to kind of give you that background. Uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to work globally in the insurance industry. I started my career in Europe uh, working with uh, the AXA Group before that led me to, to move to Australia. And uh, again, I uh, had the opportunity to work with some fantastic companies in Australia, including AXA, Ernst & Young and QBE. And that's where, when I was at QBE, became a C-suite exec. Uh, and uh, after overseeing a number of things in the Australia market, they asked me to move to Asia. Uh, and I moved there in, I think, 2013, uh, so which seems a lifetime ago, and uh, moved there, obviously, with the intention of continuing and accelerating my executive career. And uh, that was a fantastic role for a few years before moving on to another organization called Manulife, uh, one of the largest life insurers in the world, uh, where where ultimately I was uh, had a, a role which oversaw nearly two, two and a half, three thousand people and across IT and operations uh, within that uh, organization. Uh, and then the reality being that because I'd obviously been in Hong Kong, I'd been in Australia, I'd been in Europe, as well as getting to travel the world in my role, that helped me accumulate a deep knowledge of the sector and a deep knowledge of probably what was good in the industry, what could be improved in the industry. And something was starting to build really upon me around that I think uh, uh, that something was not quite there in terms of day-to-day, which I needed to try and exploit and, f- and figure out. And that ultimately led me to start making a decision around that I think it was time to start my own business. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that over the course of, of the show. 
does someone grow up thinking, hmm, I want to work in insurance? And, and the reason I ask this is Daniel Schreiber, of course, you know, a listed company, Lemonade recently, uh, he you know, brought this to my attention that in the Urban Dictionary, this is the definition, a business that involves selling people promises uh, that are never fulfilled in the end with many uplikes on Urban Dictionary. And that tells you the pulse of the market. So so how did you as a, you know, a, a young boy growing up, did, did you intend for insurance to be the end goal? I was growing up, insurance wasn't intended to be the whole goal. I think Many boys where I come from, it was you were hoping firstly on a on a, either a sporting career, whether it's playing right. soccer or or playing uh, some form of sport like rugby, etc. You hope to be successful there, and then when you eventually kind of go to university, uh, my my actual degree was in finance and law, and my natural career path from that you'd think is more like investment banking, uh, and I actually had been offered a couple of roles uh, to go into investment banking. And then this company called AXA, who I honestly had never heard of, uh, I got an invite to go to one of their kind of uh, openings for for obviously graduate kind of uh, assessments and things along those lines. And then when I just heard the scale and size of these organisations and the global opportunity, uh, that's what appealed to me. It was mm. it wasn't so much about insurance; it was about the sheer scale and size of uh, of the business. Uh, and then obviously that was what led to the decision which shocked my parents, shocked my, <laughs> uh, my friends because obviously I'd, I'd kind of been deep in finance for uh, studying in order to kind of naturally go to that kind of career. Um, but I think it's proven to be probably one of the shrewdest and best moves I made because I, I think uh, the insurance industry is fascinating with a number of so many different challenges and opportunities and and that's really what's kind of, I think, cultivated my, my ability to, to, to create the business I've created, but also gain a, a large global network of contacts, network and, and life lessons, which is, uh, I think, what the industry does. And I know your point on, on Daniel, what he made there around unfulfilled promises. I've got to kind of stick up for the industry sometimes because there's a lot of people who do have promises fulfilled when insurers do pay out on claims and do pay out when something goes wrong in your life. So I think that's a bit of a harsh statement from Daniel. I think unfulfilled promise in terms of the service delivery might be a, a better uh, kind of a statement for him to make. But I, I think it's harsh saying the industry doesn't deliver on its core promise because generally speaking, it does. Well, you know, it, it was a quote from the Urban Dictionary <laughs> in his spiel about uh, why the industry is ripe for disruption. Because as you've discovered, there's so much that needs to be done. Uh, and really want to speak a little bit more about that. I had Rosalind Koo on recently from CXA Group, and she similarly did a path uh where she started in, in corporate, like like yourself, um, discovered that there were massive issues. And for her, it was the fact that she actually requested, you know, uh, I think it was $10 million or something like that to be able to solve this problem. And her boss has said, uh, no, we're not going to do it right now. And she decided, I'm so passionate about the problem. I need to solve it. And I needed to figure this out. And, and so she went outside. What, was that a similar situation for you? And what was the specific uh, issue there that you were targeting? Yeah, I, th I think that the, the fortunate experience I've had, I've got to, to basically work in many of the major geographies and which kind of make up insurance. Mm -hmm. And and what I noticed, regardless of going from company to company or whether I'd done some consulting, it seemed to be the same problems existed in the same regions and the same solutions that had been tried by some of the insurers hadn't proven to be a, as successful as they hoped or hadn't even kind of moved the dial at all. So 
when I kind of really started thinking about it, obviously what you try and do when you're in your career, maybe it's a company issue. So you move to a different company to see if it's a, right. if it's a different challenge. And then you realize it's not a company issue. And then you can move between different types of insurance on uh, the P&C side or the life side. And then you realize mm-hmm. it's the same issue, <laughs> regardless of the different types of insurance. So I came to a conclusion, I think, in my mid-30s where basically – uh, the issue is that people don't really know how to solve some of these really complex problems which exist in the industry. And if somebody can solve that using technology, using knowledge they've cultivated through the industry and come up with solutions which can help these insurers become more modern, become more digital, solve some of the complex black box which they operate in, I think it could offer tremendous business potential. So it was that kind of knowledge of there's a huge problem or problems Um, and that nobody seemed to be solving them on a consistent basis. And that's where I saw the opportunity. And and then it was a a case of, right, if I'm going to do that, then who are the team and who are the people I need around me to kind of bring that problem to to something which can be solved for the insurers? And and that was the kind of the inspiration about wanting to kind of create the business. Mm. So a couple of things that, first of all, is... You know, you started this, as you mentioned, in your mid-30s and uh, many entrepreneurs, you know, you think about the the stereotypical image of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Typically, you know, they're young and, and they're uh, fired up. But also the key thing is not much responsibilities. You started on entrepreneurship um, after you got married and you had kids. But as you worked with Manulife uh, towards the end. Uh, before you started your 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 career in uh, your startup, right? So how did yeah. you plan for that? Yeah, so it wasn't a, an instant process. It, um, that, this was something that builds up on you, right? It's like a it's like an itch which starts getting spreading uh, across your body of going something's not quite right because ultimately, when you start your business career, your pathway is to try and get to a C suite role, right? Because obviously that's a pinnacle of 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 the kind of the, the executive sort of get pathway within an organization. And I'd got there and I thought that mm. would kind of been satisfied and kind of fulfilling what I wanted to do. But then I was kind of having these thoughts around that that actually I've got much more of a curiosity about why can't we solve these types of problems or uh, why can't the industry move on from this type of way that it's doing things? Uh, and that itch, as I mentioned, became more and more kind of ingrained in my brain. And uh, and then I started realizing that there was this whole different way of, of, of obviously kind of bringing that to life. And uh, mm. I started meeting entrepreneurs um, through kind of network as well as through kind of, uh, kind of connections from obviously the role I had. And then realized that uh, people who kind of really genuinely make a difference in solving big, big problems, they have to be fully dedicated to it. They have to kind of step out of that comfort zone and willing to take the chance to kind of live the opportunity that they believe exists. And and that was that was basically the kind of the litmus test for me. I uh, the experiences and lessons and insights I got from other entrepreneurs or people who had been successful. Mm. It was generally you have to take that leap of faith and then you have to go up uh, about it as hard as you can and give it your best shot. And that's ultimately what then drove me to do it. So uh, that then meant some sacrifices along the way, which you would understand. Like, it's very nice getting paid um, and, <laughs> and a nice executive bonus and all the perks which come with that. So to kind of obviously, given you quite rarely said, like I, I made that decision 
uh, where we were having our uh, just had after our second child. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've now got three children, but uh, basically after the second child, making that call meant that we as a family were always going to be downsizing housing. There was going to be a commitment financially uh, for to bootstrap this business to begin begin with. So there, there's an element of risk, but I think you have to be kind of trusting that you know what, what you're doing in regards to the direction that, that you want to head and that you've got enough people who believe that you'll, you'll get to an outcome. And once I felt I had that confidence, then it was a case of taking the leap and going for it. Right. And what was the problem specifically? If you can, we can now go a little bit into, you know, your business and how things are, how things are being approached differently, you know, customization, digitization, prevention versus cure are the buzzwords today, right? In the insurance industry, it seems like every insure tech is, is addressing similar issues, maybe different angles, uh, and, and you are addressing the full life cycle. Talk to us a little bit more about how you're viewing the problem that got you to, you know, uh, decide to downsize and jump and, and make this dream happen. Really good question because I like I think what what is something I didn't do well to begin with was focus on one particular problem because of my experience of the industry, my experience of knowing what what the issues were. Like we were actually probably trying to tackle too many problems to begin with. We knew problems which existed in product. We knew problems which existed in distribution. We knew problems which existed in core tech. So from our point of view, we were spreading ourselves probably too thin in regards to actually like really kind of narrowing down and kind of going at one particular problem to begin with and then expanding from there. So lesson learned, uh, if anyone is is coming from a similar situation as mine and you've come from an extensive level of knowledge, even though you have knowledge of all these problems, focus really hard day one, then build up. Uh, so that, that's a self-reflection. If I had my time again, I would, I would have done very differently. Uh, but needless to say, by doing that, Uh, It also kind of brings out which are the problems which people want to listen to the most. Uh, And then we quickly heard a same problem exist over and over again. And I'll try and explain it in very layman terms. Yeah. Uh, The insurance industry loves spreadsheets. Uh, And I mean loves them. They have probably the most complex spreadsheets that you could imagine in the world. And uh, whether it's for product models, pricing models, underwriting models, et cetera, but those spreadsheets create uh, an industry internally in terms of how do you turn that spreadsheet into something which can be coded into a system in order to be mm. provided to customers, to distributors, or to enable business rules to work. Uh, and it's something which every insurer on earth basically kind of has to go through this process of a friction between people who are creating models to people who are coding in, in, internally. And what we realized is, uh, and we stumbled upon is, we came about with a capability and a platform which can turn any spreadsheet into code instantly. And even though the word spreadsheet doesn't sound sexy, but if you can turn a million formulas or a million logic pieces or, 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 or 50 million logic pieces into code without any coder being involved, the opportunity for speed, efficiency, as well as essentially total cost of ownership reduction is huge for the insurance industry. And when it, and when we started seeing the reaction to the ability to do that, when you get that aha moment of people going, I can't believe you've just done that, because that usually takes us months and you've just done it in the space of a couple of minutes, you realize that we're on to something. 
So we really pivoted the business to kind of be really focused on how many sort of ways can we start to expand that capability and turn it into a, a truly kind of a SaaS-ready product over the last two years. And, and now I'm glad to see it is. And uh, we've kind of essentially created our kind of core business uh, go-to-market around that. It makes me think about the, the pandemic and how uh, your customers are faced with a harsh reality that um, many giants that have been around, I, I think the average age of top insurance companies is something like 104, right? <laughs> and the fact that now they have, they're faced with the reality that digitization is now uh, and they have to do what's necessary. How has that um, affected your business? I, I'm sure positively, but has it changed the way that you've approached things at all? It, it's been undoubtedly a positive factor. That, uh, like obviously, the COVID virus has not been good for it, for the for the globe because of the impacts it's had. But for the insurance industry, it did really sort of identify the kind of a number of challenges of how the many insurers were operating in regards to fairly antiquated uh, technology infrastructure. A distribution kind of ecosystem which was heavily sort of still traditional in regards to being more agent or broker or MGA led, as well as showcasing some challenges which insurers had of how they engage with customers in a on a on a more personalised and, and modern way. So the the COVID situation brought that to a head very very quickly and much faster than any insurer on the earth would have ever foreseen. So that's then created a wave of of basically insurers realizing that they have to think differently about technology. They have to think differently around where the market is going in terms of distribution of product as well as what product really is in the future. And then how do you actually kind of win much more trust and a long term engagement with customers versus just selling our policy and then hoping that they never you never hear from them again to a, yeah. an active and constant relationship. So I think the maturity of the conversations with insurers on a digital basis has fast forwarded uh, mm. rapidly uh, over the course of the, of, of the past year. That being said, obviously this is an industry where uh, it's not as if it's going to turn overnight to become the most digital-centric industry uh, in the world because it still is an industry which has heavy regulation. It still is an industry which has heavy technology legacy. And it still is an industry which has obviously got fragmentation in regards to the different types of insurance, as well as the different sort of ways of how basically insurance gets distributed. If you look at this in the US, obviously, there's a state by state regulation, which means that creating change is quite difficult to do. So Balancing the desire versus the reality of how you can do that is obviously mm. for many executives their biggest challenge. And what we're trying to be is that sweet spot in the middle where we kind of obviously understand what the, the pain of the insurers is, but we also understand some of the destination they want to get to. And by leveraging the platforms we have, we, we can help them bridge that gap and accelerate. And, and that's offered obviously tremendous opportunity for us. That's interesting, right? Because I mean, especially where you're coming into, uh, it, it really is a David and Goliath situation where um, they're almost by bringing you in, admitting that they can't do it themselves. And and we're, you know, I, I came from an Asian conglomerate as well, where there were a lot of efforts to, yeah, we work with consultants and all that, but we also wanted to build internally. How do you see that? I We face that same sort of discussion and, and, and reality on a regular basis. So I could just accept that, but I don't. Instead, what I'm trying to help my clients and the organizations we work with, to help them understand that, 
the world of software as well as the world of what you mean by developing internally, I think is radically mm-hmm. transformed. So from our point of view, if we think about the technology solutions or technology product we have, everything's componentized. So you can either take everything we have or you can take parts of it. And if you still want, as the, the insurer, to build an overall solution and feed best of parts into that, you can. Um, so we're trying to, when, when we see resistance from some uh, traditional IT functions who are kind of going, we need to do this ourselves. This is an important IP or important sort of build we have to right. do internally. That's fine. But what we're saying is you can't have world-class components across every part of what, you, you, what you're trying to develop because there's a lot of companies who have developed this and focused on this every day for a number mm-hmm. of years. So instead, therefore, we we're trying to help shift the thinking if they're not ready to be a kind of pure, I'm just going to consume as many SaaS products as I can, uh, actually, how do they leverage pieces of the puzzle to make their overall solution better? And then that can create a good win-win also. So we're trying to just change a bit of the, the mindset as well as the kind of what actually software opportunity now provides. And I, I think it's starting to resonate. Mm, you've expanded. I mean, you're still based in Hong Kong. I think that, uh, as I hear it, will always be one of the key headquarters. Talk to us about your expansion strategy. I saw you recently brought on a Stellar CEO for the U.S. market as well. Talk to us here about, you know, how was your mental model in, in you know, starting in Hong Kong and then going to which uh, countries first? Uh, again, to your point of product leading uh, the solution, which part of the product that you want to focus on? How did you think about all of that? The business was born in Asia and because of obviously the initial team having quite extensive experience in Asia, um, we, we, we developed success in regards to um, winning deals with clients, uh, kind of growing products, the revenue, and then being able to move from Hong Kong to a number of different locations within the Asia region, uh, our network enabled us to, to open up different opportunities with insurers as well as in diff- different countries. But interestingly, like a, a number of our team had also came from a North America insurance industry mm. background. Uh, and in particular, the solution here in Spark, which is our flagship platform, uh, had basically, we always felt as a team could be really, really sort of powerful and successful in the US. So, uh, one of the kind of key components when we received the kind of the Series A last year, we we, we wanted to test could basically the platform land and, and expand in the US market, uh, and uh, we've been kind of obviously extremely excited as well as extremely pleased about the growth which has started to happen in the US of the product, and I think it goes back to really the dimensions of we've created something really strong in Asia, but then we've taken it to a next level to be ready for the US market. And then we've got our commercial and go-to-market tactics spot on. And that's led to what we think is an absolute massive opportunity in the US. So Asia and and North America are, are, are key bets at the moment. But we do have deals in between those areas. We've got deals in Latin America. We've got things mm. emerging in Africa and Europe. But our, the core of our teams is based in Asia and the US. So that's uh, that brings me to another uh, interesting point. You've been successful 
in hiring some of the best talent, right? And and I think uh, for many CEOs, their job is to inspire, to to bring people sometimes that are smarter and better than them. How have you been able to do that uh, for your company? Many of them are smarter than me if they're if they're watching in. So uh, <laughs> I, I think they'll, they'll like the fact of appreciating that. Uh, I think the, the reality of why are people coming to the business? Uh, obviously, there's an element where they've got to believe in, in what we're trying to do. And I think we've always been crystal clear that our position is that we believe we can make insurers radically more future ready with the right technology. And uh, actually, when you kind of think about it, a lot of people who work in insurers are very passionate about working in the insurance industry. And, and then they just generally sometimes get frustrated because opportunities to improve don't happen. Things which should be transformed don't get transformed. So there's a yearning kind of desire for people who are in the industry to be part of something which can improve the industry. Uh, mm. And I've always looked to tap people who've got that yearning sort of desire because they've got the industry domain expertise. They've been through the highs and lows of things that have worked in the insurance industry or not worked in the insurance industry. And then many of them, if they've been semi-successful or successful in, in, in their career, are there for one to, to utilize that knowledge, that experience, to put it into kind of harness of something which can, can actually improve things quite radically. So as long as the kind of the team member has that yearning to want to put that experience to, to kind of good use, then uh, I think they've realized that working at Coherent could be something which is incredibly powerful. And then with that, people then kind of feel quite a natural ease in order to kind of work in, uh, work at the business. And then importantly as well is um, you've got to kind of give people what they deserve, right? Um, you can't ask uh, kind of people to work for peanuts or not have any equity, et cetera, uh, if, if you're wanting to build a business which uh, you obviously want to rapidly scale and rapidly drive and valuation and, and obviously to, to obviously great things in the future. So the rewards are, are obviously there for the team to, to kind of achieve success and, and be incentivized to achieve success because if it's just the founder who's holding everything, uh, the one who's been paid everything and then the one who's also um, obviously got, holding all the equity and just giving a small amount out, then I, I don't think that's going to be a good outcome for the business. So people have got that hunger to, to not only kind of, uh, kind of resolve some of maybe the pains of the past that they've worked in, but actually about the opportunity ahead. And I, and I think that's great for investors in the company as well, that people have got that opportunity. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know, that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. And early on in this season, we had an entrepreneur, Vangal, it's a mobile ads company sold to Blackstone for about 780 million. And one of the things that he said was one of the mistakes he made was bringing on people that were very senior from top brand names. And then they couldn't uh, adapt to the startup culture and therefore fail, although they were great in their work, uh, that that just... 
yeah. conflict of styles did not work out at all. What is your experience here, especially as you're bringing on very senior hires who are used to, as you said earlier on, the bonuses, the comfortable life and doing things a certain way? How do you manage that? Part of the screening process and the discussion process, like as you can imagine, nobody's joined this business without going through a significant amount of reality check uh, kind of interviews as well as discussions with either myself or some of the management team uh, to make people realise what the reality what reality is in our organisation and, and the business we're trying to create. Right, the, mm. uh, the safety net which exists in big corporates isn't there and. It's, it's not right for us to bring people in if we've not really really laid out actually how the business works, the pace of the business, the decision kind of pivots that have to be made in a rapid kind of, uh, uh, kind of style, as well as obviously the frank and, and direct discussions that need to be had if something's not working. Uh, so nobody's coming into that business without kind of actually knowing exactly what they're letting themselves in for. And along the way, there's been people who have dropped out of the process because I think mm-hmm. when they realised what it was going to mean, they were like, that's probably not for me. I'm probably <laughs> not for your organisation. And that, that's a positive process that that happens because the worst thing that happens is if you bring in people and they don't know what they're letting themselves in for and then it becomes something which actually is... Uh, it creates an, an issue in culture in our business because people can then see that they're not committed to it. So we're, we're very frank in that, that upside and that, that upfront element. And then I think the other thing is obviously if you're bringing some industry people, like uh, we, I should say, we've got a lot of obviously more traditional startup kind of software engineers, product people, etc. But we're also bringing complementing that with industry people. Uh, it's the duty of the team who come from maybe more of a, a software and startup background to educate their colleagues on uh, basically everything that moves the dial around SaaS and around the startup as well so that they can basically uh, get up to speed as quickly as possible. Because if you're just hoping that they're going to learn by a book, guess what? They're not going to learn that quickly. So uh, there's a yeah. there's a shared accountability to kind of the team kind of educates anyone who's coming in from maybe a more specialised industry role so that they can embrace the organisation really quickly. And uh, I, today I'm going to say it, I think it's worked. Um, yeah. uh, like obviously there'll be along the way, there'll be times when we might make mistakes like any organisation. But uh, I think by doing that process, that's why our stickiness of the people we have brought in has, has been good. And, and obviously the performance has been excellent as well. Mm. So now thinking about success for Coherent, uh, as you're expanding and, you know, you, you're you fresh off and we want to talk about that fundraising as well. As you're headed into the U.S., you know, guns blazing, uh, 14 million in the bag. What does success look like to you? And also, I'm interested in the American market. How are you thinking about it when it is arguably saturated? There's an intratech that's that's uh, popping out every other day, and there are big companies that are uh, that have benefited from the last couple of years. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think going back to the first question, the, the obviously what what does success and what we're trying to aspire towards and. People, I, I know people sometimes provide prophetic sort of. I would love this this a vision to be achieved in four or five years. Mm. Uh, ultimately, we as a as, as a as a company, uh, the passion is to make the insurance industry uh, future ready. And what we mean by future ready is that it is ten times more efficient than it is today. That consumers actually enjoy working with insurance companies. And that technology companies do become 
one of the more advanced in regards to how they're adopting technology in order to kind of maximize benefits in, in the kind of ecosystems which are creating, right? So if we feel if we can be a pivotal part of helping the industry be future ready, then the commercial and business model as well as growth opportunities are limitless. There's 5,000 insurance companies globally. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, right? Uh, yeah. There's an opportunity for us to become famous by helping the insurance industry kind of aspire towards the, the, the things I just mentioned. So that's what motivates us. That's what uh, kind of drives us on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. Are we kind of helping our clients really evolve their kind of capabilities? And if we're doing that, we're helping the industry as a whole. So that's mm. the sort of focus which, which drives us. And then going on the US, like, Obviously, it is a kind of very competitive B2B market and it is a, an element of, uh, uh, obviously, as you say, there's lots of insurtechs, etc. But I think the, the, the simple fact is there's, there's still a lot of insurtechs who still don't understand insurance. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I've got a perspective that the winners will be the ones who can solve the deepest problems, uh, can uh, interact with the insurers, which... Um, in a way which basically the insurers really understand uh, why this company adds tremendous value and continually provide different ways and different ways of how the product can evolve rather than maybe the, the maybe an initial sort of kind of SaaS deployment, what else can you do with pro- that product as, as you evolve that product? So we're quite bullish in the US because our client acquisition has been fairly tremendous already. Uh, and as we move to different states in terms of kind of exploring new opportunities. It seems a common problem seems to exist across many of those different states and therefore many of those insurers. So uh, it's about executing against the plan we have. It's about executing against the product roadmap we have. But we think we're in the right space at the right time. And and that's why we're going uh, quite aggressive in the U.S. market. Right. And John, to the extent that you can tell us, what does this look like tangibly? Are you focused on a certain product and then same thing of lending and expanding? Is this different uh, from the way you've done it in Asia? Yeah, it's very different. So uh, our, our real big focus in the US is our coherent Spark platform. Uh, we, we've saw that demand of uh, insurers looking for that magic of how do you take all the spreadsheets they have and turn it into code. Uh, mm. And that's led to not only tremendous opportunities in insurance, it's actually starting to stretch beyond insurance as well. We're starting to see opportunities in capital markets and beyond. So we yeah. think we're on to something which is much broader than the insurance industry. The insurance industry is obviously our home and, and what we know well, but this problem of actually how do you turn complex logic into code instantly, not just a web application, no code, the actual kind of nuts and bolts of how products work, calculations work, commissions work, etc., uh, we think is a potential sort of game changer for for the industry. And uh, we're, we're only going to market for that in the US. In Asia, mm-hmm. we've got a variety of other products. Uh, the Asia market is slightly more different. It's much more distribution centric. Therefore, some of the distribution platforms we have are, are heavily sought after and we, uh, we're, we're doing very well with them along with, with Spark. Uh, but yeah. we think in Spark, there's a, a tremendous opportunity to kind of be the leader in that space. And, and therefore, that's what we're, we're really pursuing in, in and our U.S. strategy. Mm, and what do you think your challenges will be in this instance? Not growing fast enough. Uh, mm. it's, uh, I, I think it's like any entrepreneur, like the, what scares you the most is not growing the potential of the business that uh, you believe is there and the opportunity you're there. So it comes down to the products there. It's working, it's live. 
client feedback is amazing. So now it's around, are you getting your go-to-market, your sales and your sort of marketing execution done as well as you can? So we've got to be fairly brutal with ourselves to kind of go, is that working month by or week by week, month by month as well as we, we need it to? Yeah. Because we feel we've got a killer product. So if you've got a killer product, then ultimately you should start to see the growth associated with that. So that's now the challenge for us. Uh, mm. It's the execution part because the product's there and it's loved and therefore we've got to take advantage of that. Yeah, and and so to help you with that, of course, you completed your fundraising in, in November. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit uh, on your strategy here, I heard uh, you were hot, you know, the, the hot girl in the club <laughs> that had many suitors. Uh, how did you, and, and this is for founders that are tuning in, right? How do you choose the right investor? What sort of terms? How, how did you think about that and approach that? So it's really good, really good question. I, when we went through our Series A, we, we did have a lot of interactions with a lot of great uh, VCs and investors um, and and obviously in many ways you kind of get a real variety of different perspectives opinions and viewpoints on where people see the opportunity where people see your business and where they can evolve to Uh, and I think during that you come through a natural sort of filtering process around what resonates with your the philosophy of how the VC kind of maybe views your business which ones resonate the most with, with how you see your business and then it comes down to who do you actually see yourself enjoying kind of interacting with and being challenged with? Because I think you've probably heard this statement a lot, like going into investment, whether it's a series A or a series B or beyond, it, you, you've got to treat it like a relationship or a marriage. It's it's not yeah. something which you can just break off uh, because you, you, you've felt fallen out with someone. It's something that you've, you've got to be comfortable and challenging each other, speaking directly, but also counselling each other at the right time as well, as would happen in any relationship. And Cathy uh, Innovation, who have been fantastic kind of uh, lead investor for us, that I felt that comfort with them. A, they understood the opportunity, what we were trying to do, as well as B, that, the, the the model and relationship they have with their founders and companies and how they actually like portfolio companies to operate was something which was quite kind of in, in sync with how I would like to work with an investor. And I think that's really important because obviously you hear of other stories where maybe the investor and the founder haven't kind of mixed after the investment. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think if you've kind of gone through that diligence in advance, then that that will stand you in good stead. So you don't agree with uh, saying one of, you know, I, I have many friends that are fantastic entrepreneurs that are already, you know, listed companies so on and so forth. And one of the things that always sticks with me is when I ask them, what's, what's you know, for a VC, for an investor, it's always, what is the value that I can give you, right? How can I add value to you? But he his answer, you know, some of them would say, Sarah, the best thing that an investor can do is leave us alone. <laughs> do you agree with that? Yeah, so... I, I do think, and this is what I really enjoy about on, on the interactions with Cafe, and um, it's has been that they have gave us rope to still experiment and still incubate and still kind of test certain things, uh, but with the expectation that we'll come to a conclusion at a certain point around where we're really going to place our biggest chips and our biggest sort of uh, game plan moving forward. So um, I think if somebody forces you too early into a particular route before you're ready for that, then that can lead to, I imagine, quite a lot of confrontation between the investor and the founding team. Uh, and then also there's a lot of time that like, you, you might not be, be doing something in your kind of go-to-market model 
which ultimately you should be trialing. Uh, and if you're kind of essentially getting led down a one certain path by a, a, a VC as to how you should do things, you might have missed that opportunity to unlock something that you never saw coming, right? So uh, I think you've got to be, particularly at that kind of Series A stage, uh, be right. almost as a, as a founder demanding to your kind of investor that they have to give you some flexibility still to kind of trial and experiment and and prove some things out before kind of putting the, the full chips into the table. I think when it comes to series <laughs> B, it's natural that obviously that there has to be that sort of greater sort of clarification about this is how we're going to go, this is how uh, X, Y, Z investors you are going to need to help us. But I still think in that seed series A stage, uh, there has to be that license to kind of still uh, kind of find the business model which you think is going to scale the fastest. Love that. Well, that gives me a good segue into the final segment. So you're almost off the hook here, John. (laughs) Billion dollar questions, eight quick questions, and your quick responses to it. Highest high? The birth of my children. Lowest low? Number of clients failed to pay because of uh, they couldn't get into the office because mm. of during COVID. Huh, so that interesting. Led to, that led to challenges of how we managed cash flow. We got through it, but it was it was extremely stressful. Common misconceptions about John Briscoe. That I like big parties. <laughs> I wonder where that comes from. <laughs> so I, I, I'm quite an outgoing individual, but for some reason, like, uh, stick me in, in, the, in the middle of a random uh, kind of party and I'll probably go into a little bit of my shell. So, uh, really? It'll, it'll mm. take me a bit of time to kind of interact. I'll probably be the person in the corner to begin with and then slowly over time get into more of the room. While in a business sense, I'm, I'm much more kind of confident walking into a room of people I don't know. So it's kind of a weird anomaly. You consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? So I was actually thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm an extrovert when it comes to business, and I think I'm an introvert when it comes to certain social occasions. Hmm. Okay, this is a fragmentation. Maybe you've been in Asia too long because you know we think work and play is different. So interesting yeah, I, that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I think it's also probably to do with my stoic Scottish background. So uh, I love so, it. But you've got to keep that mean demeanor sometimes, not let anyone know. Worst advice that you've been given or that you've heard being given? Yeah, don't try to push change until you're in your 40s. That was often uh, a, a common sort hmm. of perspectives and feedback that when I was in my younger days, climbing up the corporate uh, ladder, people said, oh, you can't push stuff like, until you're uh, in your 40s. That's only the time when people will listen to you. Uh, I obviously disregarded that advice quite quite significantly. Hardest lesson that you've had to learn as a leader? No one way to to basically interact with with people. So I think if I kind of reflect what I used to be like in a leader ten years ago, I probably had one style. But when mm. as you as life lessons, as well as obviously as your roles increase and your experiences increase. Uh, how you coach, how you kind of motivate, how you have to give some hard sort of feedback has to be different depending on the individual because nobody takes feedback the same way or nobody takes tone of conversation the same way. So there's been some mistakes along the way of how I've maybe handled the situation. Uh, and then when you reflect on it and go, oh, well, actually, I should have handled it this way. Favorite tool or hack for productivity? I have to say Excel. <laughs> The spreadsheet, man, it all makes sense now. Okay. <laughs> Biggest fear? No, honestly, like 
not achieving the potential of what I think this business can do. Mm. I think that if any entrepreneur, I think, thinks about that of not achieving what the, the dream they have or the opportunity and vision they see. With your beautiful children, the three <laughs> key values that you'd like them to prioritize as they move into adulthood. Wow. Well, I wish, first of all, they would just listen to the dad, and that would be a good value. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, think I wonder where they get that stubbornness from. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> well, my wife tells me that as well. Um, okay, three values. Firstly, I, I'm curiosity, I think, mm. is a, a value which is often underappreciated, that ability to question things and why things are done in a certain way, uh, I think is defined my kind of journey in life and has opened up tremendous opportunities. So I love my kids to be curious, right? Um, uh, sometimes in Asia, the, the educational system here is very reg- regimented. Uh, and I've, I've, I think in many ways that's good, but in other ways I want my kids to kind of ask and ponder about certain things. Because I think that can lead to a much more open mindset about what, where you can take things. The second one, uh, I, it's, it's in, it's passionate about something you love. You can't, I don't think you can be passionate about everything in life, but if you start to love something, then don't be frightened to kind of show that passion around how much you love it. Obviously my passion is Excel and I've got that to <laughs> life, right? But, uh, but, but in general, um, like I feel sometimes people like try to suppress something they're really passionate about when actually they should be outlining uh, why their passion is so impactful to whether it's something in society or something actually what they're trying to achieve in business. And then the third one, which uh, I is a kind of going back to my first comment where I, I said, listen to the dad, it is about listening. Um, I think I've had the beauty of, of being able to work in nu- numerous countries, have networks of friends in different languages as well as in different sort of uh, kind of dynamics. Uh, and you realize that uh, the importance of listening uh, and the wisdom you can pick up from that. Um, there's some things which I brought into our business model, for example, where it's for your tidbits of listening to other people's conversations and and then trying to figure out, well, what can that mean for our business? And uh, the, the best ideas you get are listening sort of from your network or listening from, from people who are worth listening to. And too often people don't spend enough time listening. Like, um, playing too much on their phone or they're, or they're distracted by by other things. But but I think if you listen really intently, then not only can you learn, it can, it can lead to new innovations. So uh, I, I'd like them to listen and, and selfishly so they can uh, kind of actually uh, can take some wisdom from their father as they get older. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, you know, that is actually, I did not prompt you to, just to say that, but that's a perfect way to end this because the reason we do this, I do this is, to, to listen, to listen to people on the ground, to listen to some of the real struggles and, and really being candid about it, right? In Asia, as you know, uh, there's a lot of concept of face, saving face, and mm-hmm. we don't talk about failures. We don't embrace failure enough, uh, but it's part of the journey and, and there's no overnight success without the many, many nights um, of hardship and, and failure and whatever form that takes. So thank you so much for taking this time, for allowing us to listen to your story and hopefully your children, uh, when they're older, will be able to tune, us, tune into this too. So if they're not listening to you now, they'll listen to you in the future. <laughs> and Auntie Sarah will come and see them. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Sarah. It's been it's been a pleasure and uh, looking forward to, to hearing your shows ongoing. They're fantastic to listen to. 
And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves. <laughs>